I invite you to join me again in your copy of God's Word. Swipe there, turn there, click there to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. Hebrews 12, 1 through 11. When you get there, say, hey If you need a second, say, hold on. Either no one's there or no one needs time. I'm not sure what's happening. Oh, someone said, hang on. All right. Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 11. Hebrews is in the New Testament, toward the back of your Bibles. Uh, just before James, coming after Second Thessalonians, if that's uh, still in the same place. Yeah, Philemon. comes after Philemon. That's what I said, right? comes right after Philemon. <laughs> Hebrews 12, 1 through 11. Uh, I have never been, in my lifetime, a runner. I'm uh, five foot nine, 170 some odd pounds on a good day. I've got short arms, short legs, round torso. I've, I am not built to be a runner. I have an uncle who has defied all, uh, I think, genetic laws in our family. He's built like a runner. Oddly enough, he's, the, uh, he's my mother's twin brother. She's five foot one. He's six foot one. He's got long arms, long legs. He's slender. He is uh, 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 cranially aerodynamic like I am. He's built to be a runner. But friends, I'm not a runner. Now, there was a year of my life where I did a lot of running. Uh, culminated the a process of that year by running in the Duke City half marathon. Um, that was a long race, folks. Not the whole marathon, just the half. Don't think too much of me. Never been a runner, but I spent a lot of time running one year. And do you know what I learned in all of that running? And do you know what I've learned even from those who I've known who are runners, who are built to run and who do run for a long time? Running is hard. Running's hard. Anybody, I don't want to ask because I'll just be ashamed. I almost asked, does anybody just love running and think it's the easiest thing in the world? Don't raise your hand. You'll make me feel silly. Running's hard. Anybody wants to run a, 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 any distance of any sort or run hard even over a short distance, like, like in a sprint, knows the difficulty that comes with running. At some point in, in, any, in any race, in any, uh, even any just practice run, you feel the, the burn of the run in your legs. You feel your heart begin to pound even harder in your chest. Your, your lungs begin to feel almost on fire. Uh, running is hard. It challenges our bodies. And yet, we know the many positive health effects that come from running. As we come to Hebrews chapter 12, especially verse 1, we come to a command from the author of Hebrews to these Jewish background uh, followers of Jesus in the first century, a command to run. Having having just taken us on this survey of uh, those who were faithful, those faithful Old Testament saints who lived and died in faith and by faith, the author of Hebrews now calls those who are followers of Jesus in his own day to run. Believers here, called, commanded, to run the race of life by faith in the manner of Jesus, following Jesus like him, casting off sin, embracing, suffering, and discipline as God's means of sanctification in their lives. We're called to run. The main idea that we'll encounter in the text this morning from Hebrews chapter 12 is this, run hard after Jesus, Christian. It's good for you. Run hard after Jesus. It is good for you. As we see this idea fleshed out in the course of Scripture today, I want for us to be spurred on, encouraged to run with purpose, to run with intention following Jesus, and to learn to love the discipline of God that ultimately strengthens us for running. 
Would you stand with me as you're comfortably able as we honor God by reading his word, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. You'll see it on the screens behind me. Follow along in your own copies of the Bible. I invite you. The author of Hebrews says, Therefore, in light of everything that's come before, these Old Testament saints that we've just reviewed, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one that he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment... All discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This is God's word. You may be seated. Christian, run hard after Jesus. It's good for you. As we come to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 11, we see in the first three verses, and you may be asking, why, Pastor, you just preach a whole sermon on these first three verses? And believe me, I asked myself that same question this week as I prepared. There's so much there, so much that we could unpack. But we see in these first three verses that Christians are called to run. Christians are called to run. And you know I don't mean that literally. We mean that spiritually. We are running after Christ. Now, The primary command in these verses is there for us in verse 1. It's a collective command. It's a, the, the Greek grammatical term is a subjunctive. It's a command for all of us. Let us run. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Having here reminded the Hebrew, these Jewish background believers, that they are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and persevere, as we saw at the end of chapter 10, having reminded them of the Old Testament saints who persevered by faith, the author of Hebrews is now turning his attention to encourage the Hebrews, these Christians to whom he's writing, to run the race of faith in Christ. This analogy of the Christian life being a race is not foreign. It's not alien to us who've spent much time in the Bible. We know that Paul, the apostle, uses the same analogy for the Christian life. It's like running a race. Running has several components to it, we see. Running the race of faith has several components. First of all, we see from verse 1 that it's a family affair. The author says, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, speaking of those Old Testament saints who went before These witnesses, the Greek word is martyron, it's the word from which we get martyr from. These witnesses that surround the the church today, Christians today, are not mere observers. They're not standing in the heavenly uh, stands cheering us on as we go, but rather they are witnesses to a life of faith. Their own life gives 
attestation, their own life testifies to what a life of faith looks like. We are surrounded by these who testify to faithfulness, to those who have run the race successfully by faith. Their own lives testify to having lived and uh, lived in and, and, and lived by faith. They endured suffering in the manner of Christ, even all the way to the point of death, as we saw in several cases last week in Hebrews 11. And in this way, we're the next in line in faith to run the race. Running after Christ is a family affair. We are the next in line to run after him. We see also from uh, verse 1 that running requires preparation. The author says we're to run laying aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Now, in antiquity, 2,000 years ago or so, ancient runners would run in a race, and they would run naked. They would enter into a coliseum, enter into an arena wearing bright and colorful, luxurious robes to show off their athletic prowess. But as they approached their marks and took their marks, they would remove these robes to throw off everything that would slow them down from running. The image of runners casting off robes is a, a picture, is the, the, an illustration that the author is using for uh, Christians to throw off everything that slows them from running. What slows us from running in faith after Christ? Well, sin. Those, those sins that, that just keep coming back, the sins that we encounter afresh tomorrow or even today, those are the things that hinder us from following Jesus more faithfully, from running more efficiently. Throw them off. The author is saying, repent of those sins. Streamline yourself for running. I've never been a runner. I've also never been a swimmer. But there was a time in my life when I swam a lot. And when I would swim, whether it was in the lap pool at the gym or jumping into the, 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 the pool with my other water polo teammates to do my best not to drown, when I would swim, I always wore a race suit. Some of you might call it uh, a Speedo, right? Uh, and, and just get that image out of your mind. We'll move forward. Don't let that distract you, glorious an image as it may be. Well, I would wear a Speedo to, to, to streamline myself in the water, right? If you've ever tried to swim a race in swim trunks, and just like normal trunks you'd wear at the pool when you're going down water slides and stuff like that, it's like running with a parachute on. There's so much drag, it just the water just pulls and slows everything down. So swimmers, racing swimmers, water polo players, those who swim competitively, do what they can to slim down their body profile to cut through the water more quickly. We see the same thing in, in runners and racers today in the Olympics. They don't run naked, but they do run uh, covered in spandex usually whichever if you've ever worn spandex well i don't know what your feelings are about it but it pulls everything tight right it streamlines the body so that there's less air resistance so that uh, the, the runner the swimmer the racer can run swim faster with less hindrance they can be more efficient in the running cast off everything streamline yourself spiritually for running after jesus throw off every weight and sin that clings so closely we see also that running requires endurance Verse 1 says, let us run with endurance, the race that is set before us. Being commanded to run with endurance implies that the race following Jesus, running after Jesus, will be hard, will be difficult. No one has to endure easy things. Nobody endures uh, three hours of watching Lord of the Rings, if you love Lord of the Rings. But for a person like me who doesn't really love the movie Lord of the Rings, don't you can save your tomatoes and throw them at someone else later, but... It's hard. I have to endure Lord of the Rings. 
If we have to run the race after Christ with endurance, it implies that that race will be difficult, will be met with hardship, with difficulty. It will require digging deep. It will require serious physical and spiritual exertion to follow Jesus. Run with endurance, the author says. In verses 2 and 3, he calls us also to consider the way that we run, to think about how you run, that, that, that our focus in running, the goal of our running, matters. In verse 2, he says, look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, the one who is the source of our faith and the end goal of our faith, the focus of the race, where our, our eyes go, where the attention of our hearts and our minds go as we run after Christ is Jesus himself. He's the example, he's the motivation, he's the model for believers to emulate as we run by faith, and he himself is the end goal. He's the author and perfecter of our faith. We're to look to him, as verse 2 says, because he ran for joy. He who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised its shame, seated at the right hand of the throne of God. In this way, Jesus models how the believer runs in faith and by faith. Have you ever thought about the difficulty of the life of Jesus? The eternal Son of God, born in a humble manger to poor parents, not people of of, uh, much status or means in society, who even in his earthly ministry when People were coming to follow him. He said, if you want to follow me, you're going to be homeless. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. So if you come with me, you're going to be in the same boat. Jesus, who even as we, we consider the, the, the conflict that he had with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the other the scribes, the ruling elite of his day, the constant conflict he was at with them. Jesus, who even at one point, his mother and his brothers thought he was crazy. Saying, Jesus, you're, you're, you're out of your mind. You've got to come home. There's responsibilities for, here, for, for, for you at home. You can't be out doing these things. We think about that last week of his life, and especially the last couple of days when Jesus was unjustly arrested, falsely accused, beaten, spit on, flogged, dragged to the hill at Calvary, nailed to a cross, naked, ashamed, by all who went by him, the, the, the object of public scorn and mockery, Jesus ran that race with joy and for joy. With trust in the plan of God the Father, Jesus endured the suffering of the cross. And though the cross was the most shameful way to die in the ancient world, and maybe even as we consider it among all the other ways to to kill a person, maybe crucifixion is still the most shameful way to die, splayed out naked as the object of, of all public mockery and scorn and abuse. Anybody who wanted to do anything to you could do it while you were stuck to that cross. He looked at the most shameful way to die as the path to honor and exaltation to the right hand of God the Father. Jesus ran the race set before him, the course set before him with joy, knowing the honor it would bring to God and the salvation it would deliver to the many who would trust in him. So consider him, the author says in verse 3. Think hard about, give thorough and reasonable attention to Jesus and to his endurance. He endured hardship and suffering from sinners for the sake of those who would also believe in him. His endurance went all the way to the point of death. 
And so also Christians are to use the example of Christ to energize and to motivate their perseverance in the faith. We look to Christ who's gone before us. Christ who finished. Christ who is the end goal. We set our eyes there. We set our focus there. We consider him and we run hard. Uh, That same uncle of mine, the one who is built for running, also ran in the same Duke City Half Marathon that I did in that, that one glorious year of my running campaign. He's a lot faster than me when the, the, you know, the starting pistol went off. I mean, he was gone. I didn't, I didn't see him except for a brief moment after he had already hit the turnaround and was going back. At about mile 10, when I was doing what I, I don't even think you could call it running at this point, but whatever it was my body was doing at mile 10, I see in the distance running toward me a tall, lanky, bald-headed man who looks a lot like my uncle. It is my uncle. He's already finished the stinking race turned around and run back along the course to find me. He ran with me two more miles till we got to to the point where uh, about we could see the finish line. And he said, all right, you can see the end. You've got this. Go on. I'm going to go help another one of my buddies. And and that that son of a gun, he turned around and went back and found his other friend. I think he ran a full marathon that day. In the same way, we have one in Christ who has gone before us, who has finished the race and, praise God, has has by the gift of his Holy Spirit for all who trust in him, given us an encourager, a helper to enable us to finish the race with perseverance, to endure all the way to the end. Run hard considering him. The call to us this morning, friends, the encouragement is this, start running after Jesus and keep running with clear purpose. Start running and keep running. The Christian race has a goal. It has a purpose. It has an end. The Christian race, the life of faith in Christ that we live, that we run, is not like that section of the film in Forrest Gump. When Forrest Gump, sitting on his front porch in Greenboat, Alabama, stepped up out of his rocking chair and ran down the driveway of his house, hit the main road, took a left, and just kept running. When asked later about why he was doing this race, he said, I just started running. And we see Forrest running over the course of several months, crisscrossing, traversing the the nation multiple times. It becomes the object of, of public news and national news there in the film. And he amasses a large group of people who are running with him, following him. And we get to a point, we get to a scene where they're in the middle of, I think, the Arizona desert. Forrest, as he's running, long beard, long hair, because he hasn't touched any of it in in however many months, stops in the middle of the road. Everybody else behind him also stops and slows down. They tell everybody to shut up. Maybe he's going to say something. Forrest turns around, starts walking the other direction. And everybody's dumbfounded. Well, where are you going? What are you doing? And and he says to the crowd that's watching, I think I'll go home now. (laughs) And everybody there is going, what have we been doing? What? We gave up multiple I mean, months of our lives, weeks, months of our lives to run after you, to follow you, and now you're just going to go home? What's the point in all of this? Friends, that is not an illustration of the Christian life. We don't start following Jesus. We don't start running the race of faith in Christ by accident. It starts on purpose. 
It starts intentionally. As we see our need for salvation, our need for forgiveness, our need to be restored to a God who made us in his image and who loves us, we see the need that we have to be made right with him and we turn from the sin that has separated us from him and we turn in faith and in trust and in confidence in Jesus who gave his life on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins and who raised his life from the dead to make us right with God. We start running as Christians on purpose. Friend, there are no accidental Christians. If you call yourself a Christian this morning and you don't know why, there's a good chance you're not a Christian. I'm serious. We start this run, we start this race with Christ on purpose, recognizing that He is Lord, that He is King, willingly submitting our lives to to His will and to His purpose in us, to being transformed in heart, soul, and mind by Him. We do it on purpose and with a purpose. Jesus doesn't come, Jesus doesn't say to us, come, follow me and run for a while, let's see what happens. Our race with Jesus has a purpose. It has an end goal. And that end goal is our final union with him in eternity. Face to face in resurrected bodies in the new heavens and the new earth, worshiping, praising, working for his glory for the rest of eternity. There is a purpose to running our lives by faith in Jesus. And that purpose is that our lives would look more like Christ now, that the world would be more filled with his glory today and in the days to come, and all the more in eternity as we live forever in his presence. Now, friend, you may realize that you've never really started running that race, that that your life as a Christian, whatever that means to you, doesn't have a purpose. It's just something to maybe get you through the day today. But, but you've not been running, you've not been living by faith in Christ for the purpose of, of growing more into his character, of actually looking forward to heaven and to living forever in his presence. You're not actively seeking to bring glory to God in this world and to see the world changed by, by his grace and by his miraculous work in the hearts of people. Friend, you can start that race today recognizing that you may not be a Christian. You can start that race today. See that there's a God who who loves you, who made you in his image to know and love and worship him. He made you for relationship with himself. And you know in in the bottom, most deepest recesses of your heart that you have moral failings. You are not holy. You are not perfect like God is. And those failings have separated you from perfect fellowship with God. Scripture tells us, the Bible tells us, the, the, whole, the whole of the Bible is this story of how God comes to rescue people who have despised him, who have rejected him, who have acted as traitors against his name. And the way that he rescues us is by sending his son, Jesus, God in flesh, to live a life without sin and then to give his life as a sacrifice on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin so that we, by faith in him, can be united with God and start running to run with purpose, to run toward God every day of this life and to run ever closer still every day even into eternity. Start the race with Jesus today. Turn from sin and self. Trust in him. Christians are called to run. But we see in verses 4 through 11, the remainder of our verses today, that pain, that hardship, that when our bodies hurt in running, when our spirits hurt in running, pain is not always a bad thing. Pain is not always a bad thing. Verse 4 says, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. 
Let's just admit from the outset that the author understands that there is a real struggle in this race that we call Christian discipleship, of growing closer to Jesus, of growing more in his character, of helping others to do the same. There's a struggle. There's a fight there. And in verse 4, the imagery that the author uses shifts from imagery of a, a, of a foot race in an arena or coliseum to a boxing match or a wrestling match. He goes from the racetrack to the ring. The fight, the struggle, the... the, 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 uh, the, the, the I lost my, the conflict, there we go, is against sin, the author says. But the fight has not yet for the Hebrews resulted in blood shed or the death of these believers here. Now listen, fighting lust, fighting greed, fighting selfishness, fighting ego is not often likely to lead to death in your life or in mine. And most people probably aren't even going to give you a hard time about it. But fighting to remain faithful to the gospel, to the truth of who Jesus Christ is, fighting to remain faithful to Jesus himself in a culture that is, that is ever more and progressively opposed to him may well lead to arrest, to torture, to beating, even death. And this was a situation in which these Hebrews lived. The first century was not an easy time for Christians. Both Jews and Romans were against Christians. They didn't like them. They sought to make their life as difficult as possible. There, there were some even governmental uh, governmentally sanctioned times of persecution against Christians where it was okay to drag them out of their homes, have them arrested, uh, uh, execute them publicly. Uh, the Hebrews are probably not experiencing that level of persecution yet, but still there's hardship, still there's oppression. They haven't suffered yet to the point of death, but it's a real possibility. The good news for Hebrews, for the Hebrews here, is that they've not yet had to go through all of that to the point of dying, to the point of giving their, their literal lives for Jesus. But it's clear that even in the midst of the oppression and, 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 and maybe social ostracization that they are facing, that they're tempted to quit running. They're tempted to quit fighting. They're tempted to give up this race of following Jesus to go back to an easier way of living. It's a struggle. It's a fight. It won't be easy. But the author also says, to these to whom he is writing, that struggling and suffering are not an evidence of God's absence. They're not evidence of God's hatred toward his people. Struggle and suffering are actually evidence of God's discipline and his love for those that he calls his sons. In verses 5 and 6, the author quotes, he cites from Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. It says, have you forgotten the exhortation that addressed you as sons? And here he cites Proverbs 3. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Don't be weary when reproved by him because the Lord disciplines the one that he loves and he chastises every son whom he receives. The point in using this passage, the point in citing these Old Testament verses is that just as good earthly fathers discipline their sons, so also does God discipline those whom he loves. Now, discipline can take on one of two different forms. It can be on the one hand, punitive. That is, discipline can be punishment for wrong behavior. Those of you who are parents and those of you who are children uh, uh, of parents, you know, likely, punitive discipline. You stepped out of line. You broke a, a boundary of relationship with your parents. You, you uh, disobeyed a direct command, and there's punishment for that. Maybe, uh, maybe, it's a, maybe it's a spanking. Maybe it's a timeout for younger kids. Maybe it's grounding or removal of privileges for older kids. You know what punitive discipline is. You did the crime. You do the time. But discipline can also be not just punitive, but instructive. 
Instructive discipline usually comes on the front end of bad behavior. Instructive discipline is the the shaping of good and fruitful behavior in the lives of children or the lives of others. Instructive discipline looks like going to the gym and 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 hitting the weights on leg day, even though you hate leg day, because you know it's going to make you a stronger runner. Maybe perhaps both kinds of discipline are at play here when the author speaks about God disciplining those that he loves, both punitive discipline and instructive. God punitively disciplines those who are his children. He reveals sin to our lives. He allows the consequences for our sins, even after following Jesus and running that race, he allows the consequences of our sin to come to fruition so that we'll be called to repentance, so that we'll turn from sinful ways of living and and, and again receive by continued faith and repentance uh, a life of, of following God in his grace. But God also disciplines us in instructive ways preparing us through suffering, through hardship, maybe not brought on by any action or sin of our own, but just hard times in life, preparing us, drawing us closer to himself, leading us to lean more upon his presence, his character, his power in our lives so that we can endure another challenge down the road even better. Verse seven says, it is for discipline that you have to endure. The race is going to be hard, run it with endurance, and you run for the sake of discipline. Because God is treating you as sons. I like the way that the Christian Standard Bible, the CSB, translates verse 7. Rather than saying it is for discipline that you endure, they, they, they translate it as a, as a command, as an imperative. They say, endure suffering as discipline. When you're suffering, when you have hardship in your life as a follower of Jesus, endure it as discipline from the Lord. Maybe punitive, maybe instructive, maybe both, but endure it. Because God's treating you like beloved children. Verses 8 through 10 then explain the purpose of the discipline that God gives to his children. These verses speak fairly well for themselves. But in them, the author is analogizing our heavenly father, God, to earthly fathers. He says legitimate children are lovingly disciplined by their fathers for their own good. I don't discipline other people's children. In fact, uh, one of my personal mottos as a father is not my kid, not my problem. But if it is my kid, it is my problem. Legitimate children are lovingly disciplined by their fathers for the good of their own children. And in the same way, but all the more, believers are called to embrace the discipline of suffering that comes from the hand of God as proof that God actually loves them, loves them as his own children. If you're enduring hardship, if if God is disciplining you in some area of your life, don't see that as a bad thing. See that as God's love, his care for you to, to, to conform and to mold your life and your desires more into the image of Christ his son. The discipline of earthly fathers given to their children brings about the respect of their children. Now, some of you who are kids still under your parents' house, you may not understand why your parents disciplining you is a good thing. But I've been on the other side of that, been disciplined by my parents, and now having children of my own, whom I'm trying to also discipline and grow in discipline, I'm beginning to see the, the, the goodness, the, the benefit of being disciplined by my parents. There were times in my life where I really did need to stop hanging out with those people. And even though I wouldn't do it on my own, my parents had to force me to not hang out with those people. It was good for me not to hang out with those folks. There were times where I needed to incorporate new and daily habits in my life. I mean, little things like brushing our teeth. Those of us who have small children, we know the difficulty that it is sometimes just get our kids to brush our teeth and how annoying it is for them that they have to spend two minutes out of their day to clean their teeth, but it's for their good so their teeth don't fall out of their head. As children grow, we come to understand why our fathers, why our parents 
reprove us, chastise us, discipline us, instruct us. From the perspective of experience and wisdom, we come to appreciate the momentary pain of discipline as moments of compassionate care and protection given by our parents. Discipline is for our good. Discipline that comes from God is a discipline that, 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 that comes as He allows persecution and oppression. And even in the case of Hebrews, doctrinal correction by the hand of an apostle that leads not only to physical maturity and earthly wisdom, but discipline from God leads to the greater rewards of spiritual life and the real good of growing in holiness. A fellow saint once told me as he was raising three kids of his own, he said, we're not raising children, we're raising adults. We don't raise children, we're raising adults. So there's a lot of wisdom in that. We who have parents, and you who are children of parents, the point is not for you to continue being a child when you reach the age of 18, 19, 20, whatever, and move out of the house. Parents, we're not raising children to be children all their lives. We're raising children to be fully functioning, self-sufficient, mature adults who can live in the world in good and positive, productive, and God-honoring ways. In parenting, we're not raising children, we're raising adults. And so in the same way, but all the more, God is not raising spiritual infants. He's raising spiritually mature people, those who, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, who are growing up in maturity into Him who is the head, Christ. God is in the business of raising spiritual adults, spiritually mature followers of Jesus, runners of the race who endure Amen. through discipline. We find from verse 12, finally, that discipline is ultimately about preparation for the future. Verse 11 says, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. That's true. But later, discipline yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This final verse sums up for us what the author has intended to encourage, to exhort the Hebrews with in all that we've looked at. Called to run the race uh, with Christ. Christ is the exemplar, as as the model of faith, Believers are are called, are encouraged to persevere, to press through, to endure in faith, in trust, in confidence in Jesus. Enduring hardship, enduring suffering, and the pain of all of it with joy, with gladness, knowing that it is the means by which God teaches his people how to endure, how to persevere, how to finish the race like Christ. The discipline of the Lord, dear friends, may hurt for a time. His discipline may hurt for a time. But the intended growth, the intended reward of that discipline are meant to have eternal fruitfulness. It brings about the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Discipline is training in righteousness. The difficulty, the hardship, the hurdles of faith that you face today. The pain of of conviction of sin and the call to repentance is all to shape you for a future in the presence of God for eternity. It is to make you more fit to be in his presence for eternity. It is to make you more fit as an ambassador of the gospel. It is to make you more fit as a model of righteousness and sanctification and holiness to, to those who observe you in this world. Discipline is for your good. So in light of this, this morning, friends, I encourage you and myself too, learn to love the discipline of God. 
Because it's good for you. It's good for you. Learn to love the discipline of God. It's good for you. Someone once said that discipline is choosing between what you want now and what you want most. Right now, I want to sit on the couch and eat pizza and watch Netflix. But what I want most is to be able to finish a half marathon. So, guess I better go run. When we discipline ourselves in our race with Christ, as we follow Jesus by faith, when we discipline ourselves, we actively choose holiness. We actively choose sanctification and self-denial and bold witness to Jesus over the momentary satisfaction of personal fulfillment, the praise of others, doing whatever I want today. We choose what is what we want most rather than what we want now. But let's be often, let's be honest. Most of us don't discipline ourselves spiritually as well as we should. Most often it is God who disciplines us in our life with Christ, in our run after him. He disciplines us as he points out the sin of our hearts. He disciplines us as he, as he allows the, 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 the effects, the impact of our, of our sins to, to bear fruit in our lives, to hurt a little bit, to call us to repentance. He disciplines us by allowing hardship to come into our lives, whether it's through a a prolonged period of health crisis or maybe the death of a loved one, pain, hurt, sorrow, suffering for our brothers and sisters around the world in persecuted nations like, uh, like in communist China and Iran and Saudi Arabia, parts of India, and even in sub-Saharan Africa, where Christians are literally living at the risk of losing their lives every day. God is strengthening. He is disciplining in the instructive and fruitful sense those who persevere for his namesake. Most often in our lives, it's God who disciplines us. It's God whose discipline we need. And when he does this in our lives, when he brings us to a point in that race with Christ where our legs are burning, our lungs are on fire, and our heart is pounding, and we feel like we're going to pass out and fall down half dead on the sidewalk because we can't go any further, and he says, get up, keep running, push through, what he's doing in those moments, dear Christian, is changing our desires, breaking our, our love for sin and developing a love for holiness breaking our dependence upon others and our dependence upon things in this world so that we'll come to depend and to trust in him and the provision of his hand and the care of him over our lives. He does all of this in us. He disciplines the children that he loves deeply so that we will want most what he wants for us. So that we'll love less the things that we want now and love more the things that God wants most for us. Discipline doesn't always happen personally. Sometimes it happens outside of us. And as Christians, especially in this like individualized Western context in which we live, we're often very, very self-focused. It's my personal relationship with Jesus. And so if I'm not feeling any pain right now, then there's nothing for me to learn from God. Let me just say that's a bad way to live. As we follow Jesus, we need to run with our heads up, with our eyes up, with the head on swivel, looking all around to see how God may be, be bringing discipline in other ways around us. And I want to draw us to just one particular instance, one particular moment of God's discipline uh, uh, in, in both punitive and instructive ways for the church in the world right now that we do very, very poorly to miss. If you've been following much in, in kind of Christian evangelical news over the last several weeks, you probably saw the report that came out from uh, the very popular um, uh, Christian evangelist, Ravi Zacharias. He passed away in, uh, I think, May of last year of 2020. 
who four or five years ago, or three or four years ago, 2016, 2017, was, uh, was accused by a Canadian woman of, of having an, an inappropriate, a sexually inappropriate relationship with her. And as those allegations surfaced, the board of the ministry that bore, that bore Robbie Zacharias' name took the allegations and held them up against the person that they, that, they, that they knew or the person that they had seen and said, no way, this can't be true. And they cast her assertions, cast her allegations aside, drug her name through the mud on social media and the internet and in the news. And then after Ravi Zacharias' death last year, more allegations came and worse allegations came such that the ministry that he once headed up had to hire an independent investigator. And in the course of their investigation, they went through and interviewed those who were bringing allegations and accusations, interviewed many other people as well to find that all of the accusations that came against him in 2016 were true, and there were many more that were also true and worse. Some of us can look at the situation of Ravi Zechariah's International Ministries and say, well, God's really punishing those people. But not my ministry, not my problem, right? We do very, very poorly not to learn, not to see how the Lord is disciplining the church in America and around the world through the failure of one particular ministry and one particular individual. Now, this is not to be a sermon about Ravi Zacharias, but, but a point to say there are things to learn about God's discipline that don't just impact our lives directly. Now, there is punitive discipline from God that is taking place among some of those people on that board and that were around Ravi that, that either enabled or, or allowed that kind of behavior to continue. And by God's grace, many of them are, are, are taking to the media to offer sincere apologies, confessions of sin. They're doing work behind the scenes to approach those that they have wronged in the past to seek their forgiveness, to make restitution in, 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 in as much as they possibly can after the fact, and that's good. But we who are outside of that as observers, we, we shouldn't look at that and say, oh boy, I hope that cleans itself up soon. And we need to heed the instructive discipline of God in that situation for ourselves. So that as individuals, particularly as men, who, who say we're running the race of faith in Christ, that we, we look at our lives, we look at our habits, we look at the hidden sins of our hearts and we say, I don't want to be the next Robbie. Which means I'm not going to hide my sin anymore. I'm going to confess it to God. I'm going to confess it to appropriate other people. I'm going to ask for accountability in my life. I'm going to seek to live with integrity. I'm going to pray that God leads me to hate my sin so I don't become a serial abuser like that guy. And as a church, we need to look at the, the ministry as a whole and, and say, our, let, let, we need to do our very best to make sure our church does not become the next Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. In that we discard the, the hurts of people who have been abused in the past. And, and that we don't listen to those who have been hurt, who have been harmed by others. Even if, even if the hurt, even if the harm has come from respected Christians. We need to demonstrate that we want truth more than we want reputation. That, that, that we value repentance and, and, and sanctification more than we value a good standing in the world. We need to heed the instructive discipline of God in situations like this with Ravi Zacharias International Ministries and the person of Ravi Zacharias to say, okay, God, you're not just teaching those people. You're also teaching me. So help me to learn. This hurts. It, guys, it hurts to see this play out again. 
Over the last decade, I can't even count the number of, of prominent Christian failures that, that have come to light. It hurts to see it again. And this was a really, really big one, a big hit to the, the, the evangelical witness in America. We do very, very poorly not to heed the discipline of the Lord in this situation. In just a moment, I'll pray to conclude our time in God's word and And as we go, we'll not have a benediction from God's word, but we'll sing a song of response, that classic hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. And my invitation to you this morning is as we sing, use that as an opportunity. Use that time of of singing and reflection to sincerely turn your eyes to Jesus, to, to turn your focus, to turn your attention to him. Maybe, friend, you're here, you're not a Christian, you need to turn your attention to Jesus for the first time. Maybe as we sing, you would, you would pray a silent prayer in your heart, expressing sorrow and grief over your sin before God, seeking his forgiveness that's in Jesus, giving your life to Jesus by faith in him to make him Lord, to make him savior of your life, not just for a day, not just for a moment, but forever. Yeah. Maybe you would seek to begin to run that race for the first time today. Yeah. Christian, maybe you've been walking with the Lord for multiple years, maybe even multiple decades. This morning, I I encourage you, even as we sing this song of response, turn your eyes to Jesus to heed the discipline of the Lord and to run hard after Christ, knowing that it's good for you. Knowing that running hard, that enduring, leads to sanctification and preparation for a life in eternity with Christ. However the Lord leads you this morning, I invite you to respond faithfully respond obediently respond today rather than meeting you outside to greet you as you go i'm going to remain here in the worship center i just appear at the front if anybody should need counsel or prayer or wants to start this race of following jesus today uh, i'll be here pastor danny will as well We'll, we'd love nothing more than to talk with you pray with you counsel you as you work through whatever it is that god is leading and laying upon your heart today let's prepare ourselves to respond to God's word.